Welcome to the Pinelander Podcast, the official podcast of Pineland, broadcasting to you from an undisclosed location deep inside Pineland, where we discuss faith, family, finances, firearms, freedom, food, and everything else in between with those who believe in living free and living out the values that made this country free. This is Paul Favor, and you're listening to the Pine Litter Podcast, the podcast for America's warriors. My counterpart, Mike Blackburn, is currently in Africa, still on special assignment. Uh, today, we're talking about the Battle of Hostomel, a key moment in Russia's defeat in Kiev with Colonel John Spencer. He is the chair of the Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute and the host of the Urban Warfare Project Podcast. John, Welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be back. Awesome. On February 24, 2022, a few hours after Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the beginning of a special military operation, Russian airborne forces made an air assault on Hostomel Airport. Less than 10 kilometers from Kiev, the airport's strategic location would serve as an air bridge for what was hoped to be a follow-on Russian uh, decapitation strike of the Ukrainian capital. However, this uh, coup de main failed, and how it did is today's topic for discussion. Now, John, you're a, a recognized expert in urban warfare, and I painted the broad brushstrokes of this battle. Can you uh, bring us into it? Sure. Um, so we all watched on February 24th, 2022, or before that, that Russia was planning and stated uh, that they would invade Ukraine to erase Ukraine as a nationality, all these different reasons. But how they were going to do it was a mystery, as everybody saw around 200,000 forces on the borders of Ukraine. But nobody knew the exact you know, course of action or play that, that the Russian military was going to take. True. But as we watched on TV and saw how fast uh, they Russian forces presented themselves into Kiev, the capital. It was it was pretty clear to me uh, that they were attempting a, like you said, a coup de main, which would be to rapidly take the capital city and take over the government and raise the Russian flag over the the Ukrainian government building. And it's really if you, there's a lot of historical precedents to that course of action. I mean, you think about our own operations in Panama, um, OAF-1 in Baghdad 2003. Yes, there is a there is a sense that you destroy the other people's militaries, but you can create a psychological victory, um, which is really the, the definition of maneuver warfare is the overwhelming of your enemy through maneuver to psychologically cause them to lose the will to fight. And Russia and the West, everybody has a lot of history that this type of operation, right, rapidly take the capital city, as in cognitively take it and mm. force the government, the military, and the people to cower to overwhelming force, you know, shock and all, all of these things. And, and you could see that happening on the morning of February 24th, and it really leads to – although we have you – know, people have revisionist history about – U.S. intelligence and other bodies' intelligence saying that the Ukrainians would potentially fall within 72 hours. The Battle of Hasamel is a really, and, and you know, we did. Me and my co-authors did multiple trips in Ukraine, interviewing you know tens of uh, leaders and and people there. It's really, of course, I say that now. Of course, you know, everybody, the Ukrainians were underestimated, but. The course of action that was unfolding on the morning of February 24th was a very threatening possibility that the Ukrainian government would fall in a matter of days based on the military operation that was being executed right in front of our eyes. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you know, the I love that moment where uh, Zelensky, you know, he's, you know, uh, they, they remind him as if he didn't know the danger to his country and and uh, all these multiple axes of advance of Russian columns coming his way, and 
And he said, you know, something to the fact that I don't need, you know, a plane ride out of here. I need more ammunition. And, and, and uh, that's, a, that's an important aspect that you, that you uh, bring is that psychological aspect. And, and uh, I think we talked about this in our, our previous podcast, John, is uh, it, it seemed to uh, the Russians, their, their assumption was they were going to have another the repeat of 2014. And, and that they were just going to, uh, the Ukrainians were just going to capitulate, uh, you know, over this overwhelming uh, shock and awe. Uh, but it just didn't materialize. And that right, was... and it's, it wasn't just Crimea. It was their own history, right? Like I said, there's a long history of uh, source Crimea, but uh, Czechoslovakia, Afghanistan, even yeah. the first Chechen war where the Russians could – I mean there is you – know, militaries are made up of their history. Sometimes it's to a fault, but there is yeah. historical precedence that they were likely to succeed in this operation. Yeah, you, you raised that in uh, a piece that you uh, you did other uh, earlier with your, some of your partners. Is it was a high risk, uh, high reward strategy that, uh, as you said, is not atypical of some things have happened they've done before, uh, such as the Pristina Airport in '99, uh, the airlift into uh, a uh, airport into Crimea, uh, and then the uh, uh, you mentioned uh, Grozny in '94. So they. Uh, they, uh, it's high risk and, uh, of course, uh, very risky. And then, and that's, that's an aspect of it. Just consider that, uh, we can kind of look into, you know, how risky this really was. I mean, you had, if I understand it, it was all contingent upon, uh, the, uh, the Russian VDV, the air, uh, airborne forces to take this, uh, airfield and establish an air bridge, um, and this is some hours into uh, uh, the announcement of a special military operation. And so what are we looking at here? A few hundred uh, Spetsnaz and Russian airborne troops? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it ends Just up a being about guys. Yeah. 300. But, I mean, it's, I mean, as, you, as we try to do in the article, for me as an old Ranger Regiment guy, airborne, you know, um, the the ideal of a joint forcible entry airfield seizure like i could you could just see it happening of course the russians spent years um the intelligence services intelligent services um of trying to take prepare for this operation so yes the airfield seizure was a critical part of a joint forcible entry but as we try to walk through there's also the suppression of air defenses that mm. that we you know the west puts a very large value on but if you remember like the even the Operation Iraqi Freedom or Desert Storm, that's weeks of air mm. um, taking out air defenses and command and control elements. But Russia tried to do it that morning of February 24th with, you know, in a few hours based on intelligence they had received and, and worked on very hard. But like you said, just 24 hours before the Ukrainian military are, start moving things around. And this is really what I found in interviewing. Some of the stuff I couldn't believe, and then I, we'd have to validate. Of course, the Ukrainians were not defending on purpose, right? The president of the, the country, because war is politics, ordered the military to not be in defensive positions. Although there was most of the Ukrainian military, to include the defenders of Kyiv, uh, were sent east because that's what the Ukrainians – because there is agency on both sides – the Ukrainians thought the Russians would come in like they had in 2014 through the east, through the Donbass, and take out, you know, and attempt to take that major um, axis of advance. And the president, even there's one brigade sitting in Kyiv, about 3,000, 4,000 personnel, the 72nd Mechanized Brigade. But there's also multiple airports, right? And the Ukrainians aren't dumb and they're getting intelligence from around the world. And there is open reporting, open source reporting that the, even a, the U.S. CIA director visited and warned them about their airfields, right? Because you, you don't have to be an urban warfare guy or you know, um, even a, a special forces planner to know that one way to take a country is to take the capital. One way to do that is to do airfield seizures. But there are there's four, if not five, airfields around Hostomel. So which one? But there's a kind of a, an underground 
awareness that, okay, the president said we can't be out in defensive reasons. There's political reasons for that, but we can do things. And, and this is, you know, interviewing the Ukrainian police generals, interviewing uh, the personnel at some of the airfields. All you hear is about individuals trying to do the right thing and moving stuff around from the head of the Ukrainian Air Force on a, in Borisville, which is another airfield, like moving the aircraft around or just having them um, go to a different location, not even tell him, um, the artillery moving around, or even at Hostomel, which is where the, you know, once the war begins on February 24th, it's quickly just, you know, as the helicopters are seen above Kyiv, that Hostomel is the airport that the Russians have chosen to be their air bridge, their airfield seizure. And by you know, most measures, although the Ukrainians did like park, it, which I found interesting as an old Ranger Regiment guy, you know, responsible for hitting the airfield, clearing it, the Ukrainians did park fire trucks and dump trucks and, and vehicles all over the airfields, all their airfields, as a tactic, mm. you know, that we all are familiar with to block airfields so they can't be used as air bridges. Amazing. But on the morning of February 24th, yeah. those 300 VDV actually successfully you know, get into Hostel Airport and successfully land at the airfield. Yeah, something you brought up too, John, I want to just uh, circle back around, is the initial uh, Russian attack was made by cruise missiles, if I understand. Uh, and and you, you also mentioned this, that uh, one of the failures of uh, in this, uh, the Russian plan was uh, they had these uh, missiles were you know, obviously pre, predetermined, these targets, and, and the, uh, I think you, you've also brought out in your piece that uh, the Ukrainians just simply moved their ADA. And, and so uh, a, a lot of those, uh, you know, uh, ADA pieces that were uh, assumed to be taken out were not, and then they menaced uh, the VDV on the way in. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a kind of a telling of how hard it is to, ju- to do joint operations, joint warfare, right? That. The Russian Aerospace Command, Air Force, basically was responsible for the the fires planned to take out the enemy air defenses, and they had some success to include electronic warfare, cruise missiles, um, and other assets to take out. But the Ukrainians had moved enough, right? Just yeah. to start to add, as you see, as Clausewitz would talk about, you know, as a West Point um, guy, the friction in war that like you can't predict all friction. But it's going to be there. So yes, the Ukrainians moved some stuff around, and even on the airfield, the the local commander, right? So on the airfield is the airfield that was chosen is Hostomel or Antonov Airport, which is a military airport, which we believe the Russians picked out of the even not the international one was because of its defendability, its its length of its air, um, its runway, things like that. But there's a there's actually a National Guard unit assigned to that airfield, but most of that National Guard unit is gone, was shipped east before the before February 24th. So the only thing left are you know a few a commander, a few conscripts, around 200, you know, literally what we would call the rear D. Yeah, this, yeah. He, he moved stuff around. That commander on of the Fourth Rapid Reaction Brigade at Hostomel. Mm-hmm. Airport had made a couple decisions which become life saving. It's like, hey, go move that around, or hey, send a squad up to the to the um, ZSU, which you know, an anti, which if you did any time in, well, yeah, everybody right. knows yeah. it. It's just really big guns that put lead up into the sky. Had moved stuff around, and they had man pads. At but if you really think about it, this is like one officer, a pay officer, a PAO, and about. You know, a hundred plus just ad hoc. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Who look up on the morning of February 24th again, because there's no, there is an element of surprise here. The Russians, uh, you give them credit. They, 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 they achieved an element of surprise. Um, they did have some effects in their kind of suppression of air defenses, but not a hundred, not even a, a good, what we would call a good amount of suppression clearly, but they, they achieved some surprise and, you know, flew their, 30-plus helicopters down the Dnieper, hit a right bank. They lost two in the initial um, before they reached the airport. But I believe um, from the, a kind of 
Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, John. I believe uh, one of the, the actual assault commander was uh, his aircraft was was uh, downed. Is that correct? I, I there is some elements of that. So okay. we didn't. I'm just curious if that had a part into it. I, I, I just believe that that may have had a part to play in uh, some of the confusion or coordination of C two. I mean, I, I'm, right? I, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, so that that was I saw that reported. We couldn't validate it based on right. you know, just not having access to Russian. Most of them die. I mean, that's kind of the end of the story here. But most yeah. of the Russians who get into the airfield die, and uh, because the, this went sour, like you said, the, the Ukrainian defenders had enough menacing, just enough ability, and took down a, you know just really four to five helicopters of the thirty four, which is. You know, in your risk calculation, and uh, this is a large-scale combat operation, that isn't overwhelming, but it's it starts to add to the, like yeah. you said, the the plan starting to fall apart. Yeah, and then uh, but I understand, you know, some of the SAMs like the IGLA, the SA twenty uh, twenty four, you know, well placed shot. Uh, that obviously is uh, you brought that out in your piece that that boosted the morale. Of those guys, you know, just a handful of guys in the right place. And those missiles yeah, I, not hitting the I right think, targets, and yep. And I think that that one, and we really wanted to highlight it. And I, when I give this presentation on the Battle of Kiev, which I've done, I've given the first group and a, and a couple of other people, I didn't understand the gravity of the image of the one helicopter mm. on the actual airfield that was taken down with an IGLA, which is which means needle. It's, it's just a you know a, a not as good a version of our you know our. Um, our man, our pads. stinger, yeah, our stinger, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so heat, heat sinking, but it's a, it's, it's a good one. Um, but this one lower enlisted uh, Ukrainian soldier is able to take down one K fifty two alligator, which is like a, their version of the Apache. Like they call it, like the tank in the sky kind yeah, of thing. It's, it's not supposed to be able to be taken out. It was right. like super sexy. Yeah. Whoops. But the the image of that one helicopter, which I'm like, okay, fine, big deal. It's not a big deal. But that one image actually had an inordinate ability in information yeah. warfare to motivate the defenders of Hostomel and to be to be honest, the defenders of Kiev and mm. Ukraine that hey, we can actually fight back. Yeah. So yeah. you think about the you know, war is a contest of will. Yeah, no doubt. And you and the fact that everybody has a cell phone, but that image of that helicopter being shot down mm. was spread, went viral in the, in the opening day, which yeah, is really an interesting. Yeah. Also the, uh, the, the idea of uh, the obstruction of the airfield by, uh, you know, vehicles. I mean, brilliant. Yes. I mean, knowing, yes. you know, the, the, uh, I think the guy's name, let's see, uh, major Rudinko, I believe yep. that was the commander on the ground, you know, just knowing that, Hey, uh, it dawned on, hey, this is going to be an air bridge, you know, or, or whatever. Yep. This is going to be a launch pad for, you know, Kiev's. And so it just everything they have just throwing uh, at the, at the you know, Russians and also obscuring the airfield. There's also a uh, – I have a question here too. Maybe you've, you found out is uh, there was Ukrainian artillery that supported uh, the small uh, ad hoc command there. Uh, and it seems like – uh, you know, just the artillery strikes alone, you know, not only prevented, you know, decimated uh, the VDV on the ground, but also just rendered the airfield in op. Is that correct? A absolutely. So this is the kind of the issue is we, I look back on my own training about how critical time is, right? So you do an airfield seizure and you get your minimum forces and you got to move out because time is not just a yeah. of the essence. If you give, if you can't, overwhelm rapidly then you give a defender time to innovate adapt yeah and yeah so the fourth rapid reaction brigade had an artillery element but it's really in key there's two artillery battalions that get thrown together on the opening days they even rip out all the basically students of the artillery school and throw them together and create these two artillery battalions but they're able to respond and start firing because you know, once the morning breaks, right, which you know, they hit the airfield about 11 a.m., which is daybreak. So they mm. didn't try to own the night, right? So there's a there's another element there. Mm. Yeah. But the whole world knows that the Russians are at Hostomel by the morning of February 24th. There's a CNN guy interviewing yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and, and broadcast to the world, but the Ukrainians already knew it. So yeah, within the opening hours, which is really for us as thinking about the package and the design of an airfield seizure, those 300, you know, the most elite, you know, the, the Russian airborne, which is like special forces, right? It's separate. It's not like our airborne, it's the you know, Spetsnaz and the airborne forces. Right. Um, 300 of the best of them, but they were dropped with what they could carry on their backs and, and, and they took their objectives, but all of a sudden they artillery starts raining down on them in this open airfield. Not much they're going to be able to do, which really, if you think about even at the tactical level, like maybe you should have some type of counter artillery, uh, mm. maybe, a, you know, an air, air landed 105, something to more than just what you're carrying on your back to hold an airfield if you're going to need to hold it for a couple hours. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, so uh, the these 300 uh, paratroopers and uh, Spetsnaz, we're looking at, uh, you know, AKs, RPKs, PKMs, you know, that's... That's right. Yeah, I mean, and that's some, it. And some a, some RPG yeah. and some AT systems that you see them setting up in their blocking positions. Like, you know, like I, I know a lot of your listeners are like, this sounds very familiar, right? To hit the airfield identified objectives take out the they took out the zsu in the north they take the where the military headquarters are like they're taking their objectives setting up blocking positions um you know they have the cnn guys interview them and you can see them like moving stuff around establishing blocking positions waiting for get this this is the air land right this is why you have to clear the airfield as rapidly as possible because there's heavy aircraft inbound yeah. with the main element right the the, the main effort is coming and those those were like actually in the air at the time. Is that right? That's right. A thousand more, um, basically Russian elite, are on on their way in transport helicopter or transport aircraft from Russia. But as the the fact that the Russian or the Ukrainians are able to shoot down five or six helicopters, the the air force is up in the sky. Uh, the artillery is starting to land on the airfield. Somebody turned off those 1,000 Russian forces on those Illusion 76 transport heli- uh, aircraft, and that's a critical turning point because now you just dropped 300, which happens in war, right? Mm-hmm. You just dropped 300 yeah. of your best and just turned off their reinforcements and said, you better hold what you got. Yeah, this is... This is what you brought out too. I think not in this article, but maybe somewhere else. Is uh, you compared this Russian operation to Operation Market Garden, the bridge too far, uh, with that uh, Arnhem Bridge being the bridge too far, and this was that this uh, the counterpoint of that. Uh, Absolutely. And so instead of having you know ground force just not able to make it, you've got you know these illusions that are not going to make it. And, and here, here's a question I had for you too, John is. Uh, now we there's a lot of been a lot of discussion about uh, the you know 40 50 mile of kilometer long convoy you know yep. that it ran out of gas or, or you know whatever but it seemed like um, that element that ground element uh, was supposed to link up at some point with the supposed uh, you know troops of the Aleutian uh, uh, airlift was going to bring it is that right 100 percent so there's there's roughly 50,000 Russians who crossed the Ukrainian border on both the eastern and western side of the Dnieper headed for Kiev. Mm. At 4 a.m., there's there's border cameras showing, I mean, you're talking tanks, ADA, infantry fighting vehicles, I mean, almost 50,000 troops, but they're constrained on narrow avenues of approach, right? One on the most people hear about is this 40-kilometer convoy that comes down through Chernobyl, um, and but it gets slowed down, right? So there's there's actually Ukrainian SF all the way up north engaging them by like Yabankiv and just slowing that convoy down, which can't get off the main road because the world has changed and roads lead through urban areas and it's the muddy season. But those two convoys are especially the one on the western side of the Dnieper is headed to Hostomel. Like that's that's its main target. Right. Is, you know. Was not only was it going Hostomel going to be an air bridge for these a thousand forces to get hit ground and punch into the city because we I don't know if we mentioned it but this is only twelve miles yeah. from the center of Kiev right this is where people don't understand I don't think in revisionist history is how close the Russians were to taking or getting into the center 
and raising the Russian flag on, on top of the Capitol building. Had those 1,000 hit the ground, they would have been able to push through that little bit of resistance. No doubt. And, um, and then the convoy was supposed to be there by the – so if it crossed the border at 4 a.m., it's only 76 miles from the border of Belarus down to Hostomel. That's all they had to cover was 76 miles. And it would have hit the airfield about the same time. So you can see how this was a synchronized coup de main with multiple axes of advance. But at, it just starts hitting friction and hitting friction. And the Ukrainians rise up and slow them down. Yeah. I mean, uh, as Clausewitz says, the, in war, the simplest things can be the most difficult. And, and uh, yeah, absolute friction point after friction point. There's a few things you bring out. Uh, and I'm, I'm uh, for our listeners, I'm, I'm, I'm making repeated reference uh, to uh, the article uh, that John and uh, his uh, partners, Liam Collins and Michael Kaufman, put out, The Battle of Hostomel. Um, and you can find this on the Internet. Uh, and I'm making reference to that. You, uh, you bring out uh, a few points in this. One of them is just how the Russians just, you know, under, underrated uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, you know, the, just how they, uh, how that this was a continuation of 2014, you know, that, uh, and as they, they had actually shown earlier to do something similar in uh, the Crimea. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we are creatures of our habit. And to be honest, even as you look at a Western military, if you're going to do this operation like we did in Panama, but then all of a sudden there's, not just a small little military force that your intelligence services reported on. There's tens of thousands of people resisting. That's going to really complicate the operation. If you weren't successful in the speed and the surprise and the violence of action that we talk about, and you didn't have enough ability to adapt, right? So this is, although I have a whole presentation on the Battle of Kiev, which is, you know, it's all complex, but we just did enough research on the Battle of Hostomel to really point how this key moment was the was a really significant factor to the overall failure and the defeat of the Russian forces in the Battle of Kiev, which saves Ukraine. No doubt. 100% they underestimated, but even the intelligence services, right? So it's so hard to point to like, this is the, but the fact that the, so not only was the 2014 you know, the Maidan and the, the revolution and the, all of the U.S., NATO and, um, training missions into Ukraine to rebuild their military. The Ukrainian police was also rebuilt, right? Because cities, when you do urban warfare against a major city, you shouldn't look at your only combatant is the military that's there, right? Because the Ukrainian police was also rebuilt, and it is impressive. And what they were able to do to take down all the basically sleeper cells and insert you basically FSB and all these that were going to that did mark targets for the military invasion that were supposed to be the holders of key routes. Um, the Ukrainian police, again, had a vote and did a bunch of signal yeah. signals intelligence raids the morning of like February 23rd, February 22nd, and start to pick apart at the overall plan. So the Russians underestimated the Ukrainians, not just the Ukrainian military, Ukrainian police, and eventually the Ukrainian people who even started showing up a hostel. I have a little vignette where like a 76-year-old grandfather who got an RPG from the Battle of Hostel <laughs> uses it two days later to engage wow. a convoy uh, because cities aren't just about the military. It's about the people, the infrastructure and no uh, the actual dense urban terrain that the Ukrainian, the Russians got a rude awakening that um, this is really hard. Yeah, and the people get a vote, as you said. You're right. Now, so so the first wave, this, the first yes. wave, uh, you know, you have MI8s, uh, MI24 yep. Hinds, the KA52s, uh, supported by the SU25s. These these uh, 300 uh, KDV. This is Russia's, you know, shock uh, troops, uh, stormtroopers. These yep. guys get there. First wave uh, is knocked out, right? Uh, by uh, so the first wave's out. Uh, second wave. Uh, this is the next day, correct? So the VDV, the three hundred plus dismounted soldiers, actually get hit, get on Hostomel, secure it. It's it's theirs. Hmm. 
um, the aircraft get turned off. So now they have to wait for hours. That gives the Ukrainian and the 200 defenders who had that, you know, that shot down the, the helicopter that engaged the VDV, right. they actually pull off because they run out of animal, okay. ammo. So there is a matter of about four to six hours that the Russians have achieved success. They have seized an airfield 12 miles from the capital, but the reinforcements get turned off, right? The, mm. the aircraft that, that we talked about. Now they have to wait for those mounted forces to show up. Well, that six-hour period gives Ukraine enough time to, oh, start raining down artillery and do the counterattack, right? Why, why do we always practice, like, even if we do a raid or whatever, prepare for the counterattack? Mm. Well, the Ukrainians... And I talked to the Ukrainian Special Forces major who actually got the mission with a you know a couple hour planning cycles go you know go counterattack Hostomel, and that's what happens. Ukrainians send everybody that they got. Um, they airland some forces near there. They SF um, and basically they call it the Hostomel shooting range wow. because the counterattack hits the hits the surrounding areas of Hostomel and just starts unloading on all these special your Russian BDV who have no cover on an airfield wow. and do the counterattack. And then, so by the evening of February 24th, leading into the morning of February 25th, Hostomel has all those 300 plus BDV are dead. Mm. Um, and Hostomel is in the hands of the Ukrainians, mm. but they have enough awareness, you know, through satellite intelligence, everything, those mounted forces are on their way. So they can't, they make a decision, a really good decision. Like, we can't hold this. We have to pull back into our, you know, inner defense of our layer defense. And they make a decision to crater the airfield, which I thought was really interesting. Mm. And, and also, I had to see it to believe it. So they take the artillery that like that helped kill the VDV, and then do a couple air air bombing camp runs as well of the air forces left, and they crater the airfield to take it away as an air bridge. Wow. Which is pretty pretty ingenious. And you, there's actually good videos of when the Russians show up, they try to fill those holes in the airfield with like dirt and stuff. And if you know anything about yeah. aircraft and airfields, <laughs> that doesn't work. That's not going to do it. Yeah. Yeah, right. That is amazing. I, did, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. I, I uh, suspected that, but, uh, but that's amazing. Just to not only the, uh, the cratering of the airfield, uh, the maneuvering of uh, debris, you know, to block the you know yep. the Russians' ability to use it, just blunted uh, their ability to do that. Just just completely uh, unplugged this opportunity. Amazing, right? Which is defend. You know, there's a thing in my research about urban defenses don't work. I I, I think that's bullocks because in this situation, there's a really good vignette of you don't have to defeat your enemy. Although they did destroy all the VDV, but there's twenty thousand more Russians on the way. They bought themselves time, and yeah. by creating their airfield, they bought them a lot of time, right? You, yeah, this time is, is, a that, is a critical factor. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's right, on both sides. So the, the Ukrainians bought themselves time and then were able to inspire other people by resisting like this and had this success. Uh, it bought the time that they needed to do a total defense that they do later. No doubt. And then, so second wave. So second yep. wave, uh, you know, the Russians reinforced failure. That's what I would say. Uh, and now they've just got, you know, overwhelming, uh, you know, a force, uh, 200, uh, perhaps 200 plus helicopters from the, you know, the Russian uh, perspective. Uh, is that, can we give any credence to that? I mean, a, a lot. I've read uh, various reports of that. Mm, so the, there's two waves of, 34 helicopters Okay. that they just broke up the two, two chalks basically in the 10, 10 different troop carrying aircraft, you know, the, the, the MIs, mm -hmm. but both those waves, the first wave, you know, two helicopters are down before they get near the airfield. Got um, it. Okay. And, okay. Yeah. So there's two waves, two objectives, right? A Northern objective and a Southern objective. The Got Russians it. successfully get all those in. Uh, so those two waves, which is very stereotypical, both have success. Even though they lost a couple of helicopters in the um, in the infill, um, they have success. And in this, uh, just to give everyone a perspective, if you've not seen the Anatov Airport, just look on an overhead 
photo, it's enormous. I mean, like right. you said, this is a ginormous airfield. I mean, a humongous objective. And so uh, to, you know, that uh, level of, uh, I mean, I don't know how, how much artillery they used to, to uh, pock that and crater that. I mean, then the obstructing it, that's a lot of work. Right. Yeah. I mean, they had these, which I found, you know, as you, we've, we've all started to learn how to do your target, your vehicle identification and weapon systems and all that. The Russian military, that was a, was a, a science back when we all joined earlier in the military and then the global war on terror changes. But Ukrainians are, you have mostly Russian Soviet uh, artillery, but they also had what's the, the uh, 203 millimeter pinion cannon. So that's just a massive wow. track mounted artillery piece that they rain down on the airfield. Yeah. I mean, they have, uh, now another thing that's, that uh, I saw on your, uh, this piece is, uh, just, I have just a question here. Sure. So if, uh, you know, having, uh, these multiple axes of advance, I have to look at the Russian operational design and fault it being armchair yes. general here that yeah. they didn't put more, you know, uh, eggs in the basket of, of, uh, Hostimo. They, did, they didn't. Absolutely. And, and here's, I guess this is really my question is, um, I understand why, uh, the Russian, uh, battle of Hostimo failed, but, but that uh, convoy, just help me understand that convoy a little bit more. What really, and this is a little bit out of the scope of what we're discussing, but what was the, the main uh, failure of that uh, convoy? Do we know? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we know absolutely that it wasn't, it wasn't the force structure of it and the tactics it used weren't a penetrating force right we, we have these concepts even in our military right now about penetration force right the convoy did not expect to meet resistance yeah I mean, we can all, we can even back it up to the whole the most evidence shows that the entire russian military to include the bdv didn't know where they were headed and what the exact operation would be hmm. now that's not uncommon for opsec reasons yeah um but it was there's there's a big element of that. So even in the convoy, right, where you might have an advanced body that is your penetrating force, right, a lot of engineering assets and a lot of heavy armor and things like that. That's not what I particularly see in the faces of the formation. We it almost feels like they thought this forty kilometer because it did stretch forty kilometer. And again, their train matters. There isn't kind of like you know the drive to. Baghdad, where they, they try to go through the Karbala Gap and things like that, where you could just get off the roads and head off into the desert and, you know, avoid and bypass um, choke points and things like that. You're not going to do that in Ukraine or in Europe in general. Mm -hmm. Those roads are going to go through. Not in February. <laughs> no, not in February, right? So yeah. this convoy is just ducks in a row, can't mm. get off of it, meets resistance because Ukrainians, like I said, we're all the way north. And some really mysterious stuff happening up there, mm. slowing it down. And they weren't prepared, trained, manned for that type of contested, yeah. urbanized, constrained fight to get no to where they need to go. And it, it got, it didn't, it never got. So this is the kind of the issue with the 40 kilometer convoys. It never got stuck per se, because on April 1st, when it got ordered to move out, it just turned around, and drove away. And it was gone. It just couldn't advance forward because the Ukrainians bought themselves time. And then they started blowing the bridges and started putting out obstacles. And it, it just wasn't wasn't going to happen. So that convoy that was supposed to be there in a matter of hours, mm. three weeks later, is still sitting on the road, unable to push forward. Yeah, I think um, uh, in my mind, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, I think I'm, uh, we talked about this earlier is, you know, the FM five uh, and how it mentions this, op, you know, planning op, and uh, orders production, but it mentions uh, planning pitfalls. And, and yeah. one of those is uh, attempting to forecast and to dictate events too far in the future. In other words, uh, like you said, the enemy gets a vote, you know, That's right. the Ukrainians got to vote and, and uh, you know, so they just didn't, those ADA pieces weren't there uh, 24 hours later and the, Yep. Uh, and the Russians uh, underrated and also um, 
uh, expected minimal resistance. Uh, yep. And then that other aspect I see is uh, just strange how uh, maybe I would say, I would argue the VDV would know about this mission, but for the majority of these, you know, conscripts on the Russian side in Belarus, they, they didn't know. I would nope. that it's just a training operation. All of a sudden now we're taking a left turn at Albuquerque and we're going into Ukraine. Just very strange Absolutely. how that no, all, very, yeah. Yep. And I agree with you back on the operational design. Like, look, if, if the taking of this coup de main is your, mm. your objective, right? Taking the capital, um, we didn't talk about, but the Russians, when they advanced on the February 24th, advanced across seven different axes, right? They took, right. they had a body heading towards Kherson, uh, Melitopol, Mariupol, uh, Sumy, uh, Chernihiv, Kharkiv. They, they split their forces up across seven axes of advance because they had multiple objectives. But the principles of war, in the elements mm-hmm. of operational art are like you have to weight the yeah. objective, the main objective, and be very clear. So you're right. That's the biggest surprise to me, even as a student of airfield seizures. Like, why did you mm-hmm. weight everything on Hostino? Why not take try to take the other airfields as well? Right? Send yeah. multiple VDV formations, take Borisfell, take Vassal Keep. And there's stuff going on there. Like they actually strike them all with with mm-hmm. uh, cruise missiles and things, but you know, as a non-expert, sorry, Jim, yeah. as a non-expert, I look at this and I see uh, it, it just seemed like they wanted to shock and awe uh, the the uh, Ukrainian admi- administration with these multiple axes of advance. Just, just you know, have them, uh, you know, spinning. They just didn't yep. expect that uh, the, the, I guess, the steel and the spine of Zelensky, they didn't expect that. They didn't expect... Uh, the uh, fighting prowess of those ad hoc formations. Yes. Uh, they didn't expect the Ukrainian people uh, to, you know, have a vote, as you said. And so they, they made all these wild assumptions. And, uh, yeah, it, it just proved to yeah. be a, the bridge too far for Absolutely. them. <laughs> and there's so, one I always like to caveat with. If you understand now the Battle of Hostomel, you understand that it was only a matter of a couple hours that this fell apart. Mm. Like when the point, the VDV aren't reinforced by that those those air landing forces, or the convoy didn't get there. So literally, there's a six-hour period here where Kiev could have fallen, honestly. But then mm. there are the all the mystery, right? If if President Lindsay would have gotten on a plane and left, much mm. like let's say, although the comparisons are vastly different. But like Afghanistan, when your leader leaves, mm-hmm. your army gets you're just sapped of the will to fight and the morale, let alone the people. And look, cities are matter, and not all the cities are the same, right? So if you would have tried this, if you would have been a, any other military, the city of Kiev has seen multiple, multiple sacks and attacks. Um, there was a there were the biggest the largest encirclement in the history of war was the 1945 Battle of Kiev, mm. where you had a million man army attacking a million people attacking Kiev, and there are 450 thousand defenders. Mm. The city is a vast array of complex terrain, not just urbanized, but like you know underground tunnels and locks and rivers and multiple bridges and these cities like Buchan or Pin outside that are full of veterans. Because you know what, what Red Dawn got wrong is that the veterans in within the community can rise up and lead civilians. And that's what you see even at Hostomel. In that counterattack, there's a bunch of civilians and foreign fighters, like like everybody and their brother is attacking the Russians at Hostomel. So you can imagine if you're on if you're a VDV, the chaos because you have very little air support because that starts to get taken away from you. You have no air, no fire support. You're just, like you said, a bridge too far mm-hmm. trying to hold something and it's a lost cause. Yeah. And I think, uh, I love this, uh, vignette because you don't want to under rate or underestimate a company size contingent of Ukrainian conscripts that have the will yeah. to fight. You know, you just don't want to, you don't want to write them off. And, uh, you know, something I learned, you know, just growing up is don't underestimate your opponent, you Never. know, don't just, you know, write them off. And I, th- I think they absolutely did. And, and all these other details, uh, the Ukrainian decision points, you know, uh, 
amazing, you know, to stay and fight, yep. uh, to crater the airfield, uh, yep. to, to move those ADA pieces for whatever reason is that they did, yep. you know, uh, played into their hand. Uh, the use of to the, launch the yeah. counterattack is huge too. Yes, the decision to, to launch everybody and everything you got at Hostomel, which was a was a risk, right? That was a risk. Yeah. Um, because what if the Russians would have been preparing it, a second attack on a different airfield, and you just waited and just sent everything you had there? It was a risk. Yeah, and the, the, the Ukrainian presence of mind to to just put everything they have into that effort. Uh, yeah, is, so there's, yeah. there's a hidden story here we don't mention in the article, too, that is in my battle of Kiev, is that Ukrainians also had this almost like smart city eye in the sky called Delta, mm. which is this um, basically situational awareness software where they integrate cameras and drones and um, highway cameras, all this get integrated into this one software that allows the command to see. Um, that's a hidden hero of the battle of Kiev as well as this Delta mm. system. That we, I'll be honest, I don't think we have, and I don't know if we would have been able to see with such clarity that the Ukrainian defenders of Kyiv could see what was going on, right? So they, mm. like the ability to see the convoy coming and know they need to pull off the airfield and not lose what minimal resources you already, you, you have to defend the city. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a fantastic uh study i mean it's it's worth uh, delving into but yeah that is that's fantastic and why is this important for us to know i mean it's obvious i think uh understand how russia failed is important for for u.s planners uh for special operations forces uh so we don't uh you know recapitulate uh this failure uh and also uh you know let me just ask you john what's next what uh for ukraine's forces uh, what's going on? It seems that since June that uh, they've uh, battled a pushback, the dug-in forces uh, along the uh, the Russian forces along the so-called Sarovakin uh, Zerov- line. What, what yeah. can we expect in the future? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of tough fighting, to be honest. And as I visit, I go every couple months, and I'll be back in November. Um, that, you know, transitioning from defending urban terrain to attacking – uh, and then, but the Russians had about nine months to build these complex trench lines of obstacles and mines. I mean, it's the most mined part of the world at this point. Uh, mm. The in, in order to do that, right, a combined arms breach. Well, the so from the date of this battle we're talking about until today, the the Ukrainian military grew from a hundred thousand to a million. About so mm. all that force bu- you're building institutional forces and then. A, at the same time, attacking along these trench lines. So as we're speaking, the Ukrainians are attempting to break through these three defensive lines called the Suburban Line, but it's actually across a thousand miles. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to, to get a breakthrough, uh, you know, a breach and then a breakthrough to achieve their goals, which are are multiple, but so that they can achieve the strategic victory and then have this political change in the war. So you have a, you know, you have a hundred brigades of Ukrainian forces out on this line, trying to break through world war one style defensive lines no, no doubt. without the air power that we no. even had in air in world war one to help forces do combined arms breach. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. The, uh, it seems like you know, in so many ways, history repeats itself, and so and also shows the the value of knowing history. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, and knowing like knowing your clausewitz, as you mentioned. You know? Yeah. I mean, but, I mean, yeah. everybody likes mental models that help, like you said, like the principles of war, the, the elements of operational art. Mm-hmm. All these things are soaked in blood, learned mm-hmm. lessons. Absolutely. And we like mental models. That's why people I quote Clausewitz so much. It's not that I mean, look, you got to put his experience into context, but the mental models are so relevant across time, and that's Absolutely. the beauty of some of that. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, John, what's what's next for you? So for me, is uh, I'm headed back into Ukraine to continue my research into the Battle of Mariupol. Mm. Now, if you want to talk about a bridge too far, or wow. Um, you know, a bunch of motivated soldiers holding and willing to die to hold a piece of ground. So, wow. 
in Mariupol, the Battle of Mariupol, which is happening at the same time as the Battle of Hostomel, you know, opening moments, 3,000 just amazing warriors hold the city of Mariupol for over 80 days against 20,000 Russians. Wow. Which, which breaks apart their plan, right? Because they didn't think that the Battle of Mariupol would take that long, and 20,000 Russians were supposed to go to a different area. Yeah. But there were these 3,000 Ukrainians, to include the Azov Regiment, who were saying, not not on my watch. Right. I will hold this ground. You like a th- Almost like a Thermopylae 300 yes. Spartans moment no doubt. that I have been researching and doing interviews and piecing together what happened there. And actually, there's actually less information about the battle of Mariupol than anything that's going on because mm. they were told to surrender eventually. And there's a, you know, 3000 taken into captivity and there's about 1400 wow. left still in captivity. So it's been really hard to research, but that's what's next for Spencer. Wow. Yeah. That's going to be awesome. I'm looking forward to that and see what uh, your analysis that comes out of that. But uh, John, it's uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today uh, John Spencer uh, is the chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute and is the host of Urban Warfare uh, Project Podcast. Uh, Colonel, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Pinelander Podcast. If you enjoy our unique content, please consider supporting our sponsors, Soft News, providing special operations news from around the world. It's where Paul and I go to keep abreast of what's going on within the soft community. Check them out at soft.news. Blacksmith Publishing. Been serving the warrior class since 2013. They have great titles written for warriors, by warriors. If you're looking for excellent reference material or just want to unwind with a great novel, be sure to check out the bookstore located at blacksmithpublishing.com. If you're looking for some cool Pinelander apparel, Head on over to the General Store, located at PinelanderGeneralStore.com. That's all one word, PinelanderGeneralStore.com. Have a great selection of shirts, hats, jackets, sweaters, stickers, patches, artwork, and a whole lot more. Check out the store at PinelanderGeneralStore.com. If you're interested in helping develop our country's next generation of warriors, uh, please consider donating to the American Agogi Project. The mission of the project is to foster an environment producing able-bodied citizen warrior men of fine character. And we'll be officially launching the project in 2023 in celebration of uh, Blacksmith Publishing's 10th anniversary. Until our next meeting, stay mentally and tactically smart, physically and spiritually strong, and socially astute. To each other, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. May God continue to bless Pineland.